Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, Marilyn. I'm with Marilyn Monahan today. She's the owner of Monahan Law Office in Marina Del Rey, California. And Marilyn focuses her practice on advising employers and consultants on compliance with employee benefit and insurance laws, including the ACA, ERISA, HIPAA, and COBRA. Her volunteer activities include serving as Secretary of the Employee Benefit Planning Association of Southern California, or EBPA, and as an advisor to the Executive Committee on the Solo and Small Firm Section of the California Lawyers Association. Marilyn served on the board of directors of uh, the uh, Professionals and Human Resources Association, PIRA, from 2008 to 2018, including president from 2015 to 2016. I, by the way, was your leadership chair two of those years. So. Yes, you were. Yeah, so welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes. Marilyn and I have been working together since the 1980s when I was running a third-party administrator that specialized in self-funded health plan, and it still baffles me that we've been working together that many decades. It baffles me as well, but it's been wonderful. <laughs> yes, it has. You helped me with COBRA regulations when they first went into effect, uh, when we had to provide uh, COBRA administration to our self-funded clients, and also through the HIPAA portability rules, and then through the HIPAA privacy and security years, and more recently, of course, the Affordable Care Act and all of the impact that all of those regulations and laws had on employers. So thank you for being here today and welcome. It is my pleasure. Um, I'm looking forward to today's discussion on a very important topic. Yes, this will be great. So let's talk a little bit about some IRS Section 4980H Employer Shared Responsibility Basics to set the stage before we get into the meat on the reporting and the 226J letters that employers are receiving in their inboxes right now. Uh, the shared responsibility penalty is still in effect for applicable large employers, and the majority of the IRS 1094 and 1095 reporting requirements are still in effect. Can you comment a little bit to kind of get us started on this? Yes, let's set the stage, as you said, by talking a little bit about um, the employer shared responsibility penalties. The ACA actually included two shared responsibility penalties, one that applied to individuals and in which you would have to pay when you filed your 1040 if you didn't have health coverage, and the one that applied to applicable large employers or ALEs. The one that applied to individuals was repealed effective January 1, 2019. So as of last January, individuals would not have to pay a penalty to the IRS if they did not have health coverage. Interestingly, California has added a little twist on this. Of course, California always has to add little twists on everything. Okay, I get that. So the state of California passed a bill, and Governor Newsom signed it, which went into effect January 1, 2020, which reinstates the individual mandate, but at the state level rather than the federal level. So starting January 1, 2020, if you don't have health coverage when you file your 2020 540 with the Franchise Tax Board, you might have to owe a penalty. Right, which we've been talking about that with our open enrollment meetings just to make sure people are aware. The federal penalty is gone, but the state penalty is brand new. Something to look forward to. Right, and it is good for employers to let employees know about that during open enrollment to encourage them to sign up so they won't face those penalties down the road. The second penalty under the Affordable Care Act, the employer shared responsibility penalty, does remain in effect. That is the 4980H penalty, which we'll talk about in a little bit more detail. But um, 
Along with the 4980H employer shared responsibility penalty, the IRS forms 1094 and 1095 reporting requirement also are still in effect. And the reason is because those forms provide the IRS with the data the IRS needs in order to determine whether or not the employer owes a 4980H penalty. And if they think you do owe a penalty, that's what causes them to send out the 226J letter. So it all ties in together. Yeah, well, let's uh, start a little bit here with the beginnings. Let's uh, remind the listeners, who is an applicable large employer, an ALE? You are an ALE if you averaged at least 50 full-time employees, including full-time equivalent employees, otherwise otherwise known in the real world as part-time employees, during the preceding calendar year. So what you do is you add up all of your full-time employees, and a full-time employee is anyone who works 30 hours or more on average per week. Those individuals count as one. And then you add up your part-time employees' hours, and you run them through a formula, and if adding together your full-time and your part-time people, you hit 50 or more, you're considered an applicable large employer. As I mentioned, the IRS has a formula for making this determination. They've issued some publications which will provide a very summary description of those, and those are IRS publications 5208 and 5200. And just a reminder to employers, your status as an ALE could change from year to year. If you add a lot of employees or drop employees, you could go over or under the 50 mark. And also if you're involved in a merger or acquisition because the aggregated or control group rules apply. But that's a whole nother topic. We we won't talk about that today. (laughs) That's way too confusing. But yeah, that, that is a whole new set of rules and that's very complicated. Um, Well, that's good information. Uh, To avoid the 4980H penalties, an applicable large employer must offer minimum essential coverage or MET coverage to at least 95% of its full-time employees and their dependent children, but not necessarily to their spouses, and that coverage must be considered affordable and minimum value to avoid the penalty. Uh, Full-time employees, again, are those averaging, as Marilyn said, 30 hours per week. So Marilyn, can you comment briefly on how to measure employee hours? For example, monthly method or look-back measurement methods? Certainly. For some employees, it will be very clear that they are full-time employees. Um, Let me use an example of a retail store. Um, You you hire Susie to work in in the office of your retail store as a bookkeeper. Susie is expected to show up at the office from 9 to 5, five days a week. So Susie is clearly working on average 30 more hours per week she is a full-time employee, she is entitled to an offer of coverage as soon as the employer's waiting period ends. But there are going to be other employees where it won't be so clear on their start date whether or not they're going to be full-time, whether or not they're going to average 30 or more hours. So for example, in our retail store scenario, you might have a sales associate, Joe, who's working as a salesperson on the sales floor and Joe's hours might be 10 hours one week, they might be 35 the next, they might be 25 the next, so they're going to fluctuate. Under the ACA, we call those individuals variable hour employees. And those are pretty common. I mean, a lot of employers have variable hour employees. A lot of employers do. Uh, It's very common in retail, restaurant, um, various types of services industry, but it pops up in a surprising number of contexts. Mm -hmm. So if you have variable hour, or part-time employees or seasonal employees whose hours vary, the IRS has set up two different measurement methods that you can use to measure their hours. 
You can use either their monthly method, where you measure their hours every month to determine whether or not they're eligible for coverage, or they have what they call the look-back measurement method. And can you explain how briefly how the look-back measurement method works? Yes, so the look-back measurement method um, this, in just a brief summary, is a mechanism to measure employee hours over time to determine how many hours they average. So an employer sets up a measurement period that can run anywhere from 3 to 12 months. Most employers choose 12 months just because it's more administratively uh, convenient than uh, constantly adding up uh, hours and offering people coverage. So in my retail store example, let's say the retail store set up a 12-month measurement period. They would measure Joe's hours over the course of 12 months. If over the course of 12 months he averaged 30 or more hours per week, he would be considered a full-time employee for the following stability period. So you have a measurement period when you measure the employee's hours and that determines their status during the following, following stability period. And explain briefly what a stability period is. So the stability period needs to be um, no shorter than six months and at least as long as the measurement period. So in my example, where you've got a 12-month measurement period, it will be followed by a 12-month stability period. So if during the measurement period, Joe works 30 or more hours per week, on average, he will be considered a full-time employee during the 12-month stability period that follows. He'll be entitled to an offer of coverage, and his status for most purposes is locked in during that stability period, even if his hours drop. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that people were aware of the terminology. For example, if some people that are listening to this are brand new into their positions and are expected to jump into this and figure out all this stuff is what all this stuff is, they may not understand you know, some of the terminology like you and I might. That's why I wanted to kind of hit on that again as well. And the terminology is unique to the mm -hmm. Affordable Care Act. It right. doesn't pop up anywhere else. They right. created this for this, the implementation of these rules. How important is it that the employee's SBC states that the plan meets the MEC or minimum value? Well, the Summary of Benefits and Coverage, or SBC, can be a very useful tool for the employer to have on hand. The Affordable Care Act requires that every plan must have an SBC. If you're fully insured, the carrier prepares it. If you're self-funded, it's your obligation or your TPA's obligation to prepare it. But you are required to have one and distribute it to your employees. But one of the helpful things about it is that um, in the template form that they have for the SBC, two of the questions employers are required to ask or carriers are required to ask is, is this coverage mech and is it minimum value? And if the answer to both of those is yes or no, um, it's, it's a good idea to keep a copy of that SBC in your 49800H compliance file. I find after a lot of employers get 226J letters that they haven't kept copies of these old documents and then they rely on their brokers to go back and get the documentation from their carrier, which their broker's usually happy to do. But it's a lot more convenient, it's a lot faster if you have one yeah. in your files ready to go. And if you change brokers, it can be a little bit more complicated. Yes. And I know that you mentioned self-funded employers uh, would use a lot of times their TPAs. I know that as a full-service brokerage operation, we actually create, I myself personally actually create the SBCs for our self-funded clients. That way I know they're done, that way I have all the history of them, and if something like this comes up, they have them. But you're right, if they change brokers or something like that, um, it's, just, it's all time sensitive too, because sometimes 
you know, they don't have it. And it could take days, weeks, and you know, to get that information. And it's, it's difficult. So it's really important. I, I think your point is, is well taken that they need to have those things available and keep them in an employer file or make sure the broker has them. But like I said, I think the employer should always have a copy as well because it's their responsibility to have those. Um, I, I'm perfectly happy to supply them to our clients on, on when they need them when these things come up. But somebody has to have them and they need to be available pretty quickly because you're under time constraints here when you're dealing with this. Exactly. And as you said, it is ultimately the employer's responsibility. So dual record keeping systems can't hurt. That's what I like. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can maintain them electronically. You don't have to keep them in paper form. So right. the, the storage costs are minimal. Yes, exactly. Can you briefly tell the listeners the difference between the A penalties and the B penalties? Yes. So the 49802H employer shared responsibility penalties actually have two parts. There's the A penalty and the B penalty. The A penalty is the most expensive penalty, and it's the one employers work the hardest to try to avoid because the financial consequences are the most significant. Um, in order to avoid the 4980H penalty, the applicable large employer must offer minimum essential coverage or MEC coverage to at least 95% of its full-time employees and their dependent children. Interestingly, you don't have to make an offer of coverage to the spouses if you don't want. And just a little reminder, even though I mentioned earlier that in determining whether you're an ALE, you add up your part-time employees for the um, employee count, you don't have to offer coverage to part-time employees, just full-time employees. Right, so that's only, that's only, that's a good, that's a good reminder to make sure people understand that. That's only to figure out if you're going to qualify to be a full-time, uh, excuse me, to be a uh, an applicable large employer. Once you know that that you, that you are an applicable large employer, you can kind of set the part-time people aside. Correct. Until a later time, until you find out you maybe have gone over the hour requirement and have to offer them coverage. Exactly. So right now, they go away. You can set that, set that calculation aside and move on. Exactly. Okay. So if you don't offer MEC coverage to at least 95% of your full-time employees and their dependent children, then the, the IRS will impose a penalty. And they will impose that penalty if one of your full-time employees goes to Covered California or the federal marketplace, buys an individual policy, and gets a premium tax credit to help them pay the cost of the penalty. It's the going to the Covered California or the federal marketplace and getting that premium tax credit or PTC that kicks off the penalty. And how the A penalty is calculated is they multiply the penalty amount times your entire full-time employee population minus 30. So let's say um, for 2019, the penalty is $2,500 per year. For 2020, by the way, it's 2570 But I'll use a 2019 example because we're getting ready to file the 2019 forms. Right. So... If you were an ALE in 2019 with 200 full-time employees and you didn't offer MEC coverage to at least 95% of them, the IRS would take the 200 full-time employees, subtract 30, so you have 170 full-time employees, multiply that by $2,500, and you're looking at a penalty of $425,000. Right. It's not a small penalty. That's the big one. That's the big one. And that's so the that's... one I've seen. That's the one I've seen in the in the hundreds of thousands to even in the million mark or, or above and some of the larger employers. So and, that's the big one. And that can be startling if you get a 226J letter mm -hmm. in a couple of for a couple of million dollars. Yes. Yes, and we've seen those. And we have seen those. 
So um, the next penalty is the B penalty. To avoid the B penalty, you have to make certain that that MEC coverage you offer is also minimum value and affordable. And affordable, by the way, is not what you might define as affordable. It's not what your employees might define as affordable. It's a defined term under the Affordable Care Act, and we'll talk a little bit more about how you determine affordability. But if, let's say, you offered coverage to 95% of your employees, and it was MEC coverage, but and it was also minimum value coverage, but it wasn't affordable. In that case, the way the B penalty is assessed is it is calculated based on the number of employees who go to Covered California or the federal marketplace, buy an individual policy, and get the premium tax credit. So whereas the A penalty is based on your entire full-time employee population minus 30, the B penalty is only based on those people who actually get a premium tax credit. Right. The penalty is a little bit higher than the A penalty, but it's assessed on a, generally a much smaller population, so its impact is lower. So the B penalty for 2019 is 3750 and for 2020 it goes up to 3860 So as an example for 2019, if five of your employees got a premium tax credit from Covered California, you would be looking at a penalty of 18750 Still a lot of money to write a check to the IRS for, but a lot less than $425,000. Yes, absolutely. So employers can use one of the three safe harbor methods to uh, determine that affordability you mentioned. Can you comment briefly on what those safe harbor methods are? Yes. So as I mentioned, in order to avoid the B penalty, you want to make certain that the coverage you offer is also affordable. Affordability is based on how much employees have to pay for self-only coverage for the employer's lowest cost plan. So if the employer offers a relatively low cost HMO plan and a higher cost PPO plan with a buy-up, we're only focused on the low cost HMO plan. And if the cost for that HMO coverage exceeds certain limits, it is not considered affordable, making the employee eligible for a premium tax credit if they go to Covered California or the federal marketplace. And every year, the IRS announces the affordability percentage that you use in order to make the calculation, um, and therefore, that helps you determine how much you're going to want to ask employees to contribute towards self-only coverage for the lowest cost plan. So that's a key determination that employers have to make before open enrollment every year. Figure out which is your lowest cost plan and then calculate the self-only employee contribution amount to make certain it's affordable. And as Dorothy mentioned, the IRS has given us three methodologies for calculating affordability. They're referred to as the W-2, the rate of pay, and the federal poverty line, uh, affordability safe harbors. If you use one of these methods and you set your contribution rates consistent with the relative, relevant calculations, the coverage will be considered affordable and the employer will not be liable for the B penalty. Simple. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> simple. All of this. You remember when we did this for our clients, when we first uh, introduced this to our clients back uh, several years ago, or we had, uh, when we had the... Uh, several locations, several hotels, and had all of our clients show up 
and I pulled out the calculators. Do you remember this? I remember the calculators. I do. Yes, yes. We actually said, okay, we're going to, we give them all kinds of scenarios, and we had them actually calculate the penalties, calculate, you know, everything, figure out what the safe harbor so that before they walked out of that room, they were a little bit, you know, more prepared to deal with the ACA. Um, and I think some of the problems that we have that we're seeing out there is that not everyone was educated at that level when all this started. So that's why I'm glad that we're doing this today because, um, you know, this is complicated. I remember that you and I talking on the phone, I can't say how many times, uh, and meeting and so forth. I was trying to get my hand wrapped around this thing because I'm not a math person. You probably know that about me. I'm not a math person. Anthony, my business partner, is more into the math than I am. You know, I'm a concept person, right? I study regulations, I study this, but I had to try to break it down with your assistance. And I have to tell you, when we did those things, I had to actually learn how to do these calculations and I wasn't happy at all. So I'm just saying, this is not an easy task. If, you, if this is brand new to someone, that they've just been thrown into this and they're looking at this, um, it's not easy. So if you're getting a little frustrated, I, I totally get that. And that's why we need to bring people in to assist us when, when we don't understand these things. So, But with regard to the concepts, this is where the planning comes into play. And this is where HR and perhaps the CFO and the broker can work together to come up with a good solution for the employer. Because as I mentioned, you're focused on the lowest cost plan. Right. The employer can still add um, buy-up options. So in my example, you had a low-cost HMO, but that might not be the right choice for all of your employees. Mm -hmm. So you can add buy-up options. And the amount that they have to pay toward the buy-up is irrelevant to right. the affordability calculations. So is any amount you ask them to pay toward dependent coverage. Right. You're only focused on the self-only premium. Right. And the lowest cost plan. That's really important. So let's get into the reporting now. Can you tell us briefly about the forms 1094C and 1095C, what they're designed to do and what they're designed to report on? Right. So the 1094C and the 1095C are, as I mentioned earlier, the forms that the IRS will use in order to determine whether or not the applicable large employer owes a 4980H A or B penalty. So the information you provide on those forms really does have consequences. You will see that uh, if you ever get a 226J letter, they copy and quote the information that you've provided on those forms right into the letter and demonstrate how that um, uh, results in a penalty. So there are two forms, the 1094C and the 1095C that you prepare and file with the IRS. The 1094C is a transmittal form. Most employers will file only one of those. And that 1094C contains aggregate data on the employer's entire workforce. It's a little bit like a W-3. The 1095C is an individualized form and you also referred to as an employee statement and you produce one for each of your full-time employees. Think of it a little bit like a W-2. So when it comes time to file with the IRS, you'll file one 1094C, the transmittal form, and you'll attach to that all of the 1095Cs that you've produced for your employees. The 1095C is only required for your full-time employees. You must prepare one 1095C for each full-time employee, whether or not they enroll in coverage. There's one exception to that, and that is if you self-fund 
and you offer coverage to your part-time employees and they enroll in coverage, you must also prepare a 1095C for the individuals who the part individual part-time employees who enroll. And these forms are filed with the IRS. The 1095Cs are also distributed to employees and the forms are important because they give the IRS the data the IRS needs in order to determine whether or not you owe a 4980H A or B penalty. So the information you provide on these forms really matters. You will see if you ever get a 226J letter that they actual, actually repeat the information that you've coded onto the 1094C and the 1095C. So it, there are consequences to how you fill out the forms. So double check your forms. <laughs> We'll talk more about that in a moment. What are the filing deadlines for the 2019 forms since we're just finishing up the 2019 year and people are in the process of doing these right now, including the extensions? The first deadline you typically have is the deadline to distribute the 1095C forms to employees. Usually the deadline, there's the standard deadline, if you will, is January 31, 2020, which coincides with the deadline to provide the W-2. And in fact, you can put them in the same envelope. The IRS has actually extended that deadline for employers to March 2, 2020. So employers get a little bit more time. However, because they've created that automatic extension, there will be no more extensions after March 2. The filing deadlines um, are February 28, 2020, if you file on paper, and March 31, 2020, if you file electronically. You must file electronically if you are filing 250 or more 1095Cs. And filing electronically is not as easy as filing your, your 1040 through TurboTax. It's it's a bit of a process to get yes. registered and set up to do it. So don't wait until noon on March 31 expecting to be able to do it or you will run out of time. Yeah. I will also add that um, you can request a short extension of time to file if you um, file a form on time with the IRS. Um, on or the, by on time, you have to file it on or before the filing deadline but um, I would aim to get them done by those deadlines if at all possible. What are the penalties for the 2019 forms if uh, the forms are not filed or furnished on time? The penalties for failure to furnish and file the forms on time are $270 per form for 2019. The penalty amounts can vary depending on timing, so it gets more expensive um, the longer you delay. So if you miss the deadlines, it's still better to get them in sooner rather than later. And you said it was uh, $270 per form and that they adjust each year. Yes. So, for example, if you failed to furnish 100 1095Cs, it's $270 times 100. If you also failed to file those same 100 1095Cs, you're looking at another 100 times 270. So the numbers, again, add up. Yes, they certainly do. That's, that's scary. Are there penalties if the forms contain incorrect information or are incomplete in some way? Yes, the same $270 penalties apply if you furnish and file the forms on time, but they are incomplete or incorrect. However, since this 1094-1095 filing requirement 
was created in 2015, each year the IRS has granted some penalty relief and they've done so again for 2019. And what they say through this penalty relief is if the employer furnishes and files the forms on time, but makes some errors in completing them or provides some incomplete data, they will not assess the penalty if you can show that you made a good faith effort to comply. So the bottom line is make the good faith effort. Exactly. Okay. So there are penalty amounts by calendar year um, for the section 4980H rules, and the penalties for calendar year 2018 were 2330, and for the A penalty, and I believe it was 3480 for the B penalty, did these go up for 2019, and are they going to go up again in 2020? Yes, they adjust each year. The IRS will issue a notice explaining um, what the increase will be. So for 2019, the A penalty is $2,500, and for 2020, it goes up to $2,570. And for 2019, the B penalty is $3,750, and for 2020, it goes up to $3,860. You can pretty I, much assume that it's going to go up a little bit each year. It goes up a little bit each year. And I should also mention those are annualized numbers. If you actually get assessed a penalty, the IRS breaks them down on a month-by-month -month basis. Um, but it's easier to talk about them in annual terms. Okay. So let's talk about the two most common IRS or state notices that employers are receiving regarding the ACA requirements, the 226J letters and the marketplace appeal letters. That's the most important thing we wanted to cover today. Can you help the listeners understand more about the 226J letter and the marketplace appeal letters? Certainly. The IRS sends a 226J letter when it thinks that the applicable large employer owes a 4980H A or B penalty. The letter is triggered by two separate factors. The first is if one or more of the applicable large employers, full-time employees, went to Covered California or the federal marketplace, bought an individual policy, and received a premium tax credit or PTC. The second factor is based on the information that the employer filled out on the 1094 and 1095C forms. So if in filling out those forms, you indicated, for example, that you did not offer MEC, minimum value, or affordable coverage as required by 4980HA or B, that could trigger a penalty. The letter, when you receive it, you'll notice on the first page, contains what they called a proposed ESRP assessment. ESRP stands for Employer Shared Responsibility Payment. The IRS has been sending out letters pertaining to the 2017 tax year and should be sending them out for the 2018 tax year soon if they haven't already started. So they're a little behind. They are a little bit behind. So that's the background on the 226J letters. The other letters you mentioned were the Marketplace Appeal Letters. Those come from Covered California. If you're in California, you will see the Covered California logo on the outside. But the appeals themselves are actually processed by the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS. You receive a marketplace letter as an employer, usually in the fall. They come out in the fall, typically. And you receive one if one or more of your employees went to Covered California, bought an individual plan, and got a premium tax credit. And the reason you need to know whether or not an employee got a premium tax credit is, as I've mentioned, that's what triggers the A and the B penalty. Um, 
Now, what happens if you get one of these letters and you look at it and you think, hey, Joe Smith, my employee, shouldn't have been entitled to a premium tax credit because I offered him MEC minimum value affordable coverage. What can I do? There is a mechanism for appealing these letters, and you can send an appeal form. You have 90 days to do it, providing certain information to um, HHS explaining why you don't think your employee, Joe Smith, should have received a premium tax credit. When you appeal to HHS, they do require backup documentation. If they're not satisfied with the backup documentation that you've sent, they will send you another letter asking you for more backup documentation, and you can then re, uh, supplement your response. Um, I will tell you that HHS does not actually assess a 49800H A or B penalty with these letters. The penalty assessment comes from the IRS through the 226J letter. HHS is only telling you that one of your employees got a premium tax credit, so that gives you a hint that somewhere down the line it's a possibility you could get a 226J letter. Okay, so there are specific forms that uh, must be used with the 226J letters. Can you briefly tell us what an employer has to submit if they get a 226J letter? Yes, so attached to the 226J letter, there will be a document called a Form 14764. Yeah, and of course, we're supposed to all, all have all of these forms memorized, right? That's, that's right. <laughs> okay. I, don't, I never do. I always have to look them up. So You can actually, you know, you can Google this or go on the IRS website and see what they look like, but one will be attached yeah. to the 226J the main, letter. The main thing is you will get something that, that they, they're, they're not going to just assume you, you have to find them. They're going to give it to you. Exactly. <laughs> and the Form 14764, you absolutely have to refer turn to the IRS. It's your response letter. And it's a two-page document where you check some boxes and fill in some blanks. And basically what you say when you respond to the IRS through the 14764 is, yes, I believe I owe the penalty. I'm checking the, the applicable box and I am attaching a check for the full amount. Or your other option is saying, no, I don't think I owe the penalty. I'm checking the applicable box for that. And then I'm going to attach a cover letter explaining why I don't think I owe the penalty. So that's where, where you where somebody like you really comes in. They need to get their act together to make sure that when they make that letter, uh, they attach that letter, that it has all the valid information that they need. That's right. So the key thing is to return that 14764, but if you're stating in that letter that you don't owe a penalty, they are going to expect some form of explanation for that, and that's where you write the cover letter, and that is where you can get assistance from um, experts to help you um, assess what the basis for the penalty was, whether you have any grounds to contest the penalty, and how you then explain that to the IRS in that letter. The um, other document that you'll find attached to the 226J letter is a form 14765, and that form identifies which of your employees received a premium tax credit. And when you look at that form, you will see the employee's name, and you will also see next to their name all the indicator codes that you completed on their 1095C. It will be copied right into the 14765. You will want to look at the form 14765 and the indicator codes given for each employee closely because it's possible that you made a mistake when you filled out the 1095C forms and you used the wrong indicator codes and there is an opportunity with this form to correct 
the indicator codes that you used earlier. For example, we've seen a lot of employers that left off the affordability safe harbor codes. And so there is a line on the 14765 where you can plug in the appropriate affordability safe harbor code and that will explain to the IRS, whoops, we made a mistake based on this. This is the coverage was affordable and please don't assess a B penalty. And that's what, what I've seen most often is they just simply didn't check the right box or left it blank or check the wrong box or something like that. Sometimes they're having a, their payroll company do it. They don't double check the work. So it's really important that they go back and look at all those those indicator codes because that that's that's where the penalties come from. In a lot of instances, I have seen um, employers receive these 226J letters exactly for the reasons you stated. They mm -hmm. filled out the 1094C or the 1095C incorrectly. Yeah. So um, you do have the opportunity to correct that situation and explain it. We are seeing a lot of errors in the completion of these forms on both the 1094C and the 1095C. So the first thing that I would do if you get one of these 226J letters is get a copy of your 1094C form for the applicable tax year, get a copy of the 1095Cs for any of the employees identified in the form 14765, check the data provided on those forms when they were originally filed to see if it is accurate, um, and whether or not the way in which you completed those forms resulted in the proposed ESRP payment. Um, and through the appeal process, you can write back to the IRS and explain, whoops, we made a mistake in completing these forms. We should have used this indicator code rather than that indicator code. We should have checked this box. We checked the wrong box. And this is, a, this is an opportunity for you to correct the situation and perhaps um, get rid of that uh, proposed ESRP assessment. Obviously, that's that's your entire goal is to, to get rid of the, the penalties, of course. What about the 5699 letter? An employer will receive a 5699 letter if you have not filed the 1094 and 1095 forms and the IRS thinks perhaps you should have. So I have seen instances, for example, where an employer filed the forms one year and didn't file them the next. So the IRS is curious as to why you didn't file them the next. Did you drop in size and you're no longer an ALE? Or an employer might get them if they didn't file the forms at all and now the IRS is reminding them that they should have. So, um, so it's an oops letter. It's an oops letter. <laughs> okay. So it's the IRS saying, um, we think you should have filed them. You haven't filed them. Please explain. Yes. So let's get back to the 226J letters. This obviously has the largest financial impact uh, potentially on employers, and we've seen, again, the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, as we've mentioned earlier. So the obviously the uh, goal is to respond in such a way that you can reduce those or eliminate the penalties, which we've been talking about for the last several minutes. What kind of assistance is best to be looking for? Who should the employers turn to when they get one of these letters? These letters do require your attention. You must respond. It's not optional, and the potential penalties are high. So. You have various options in order to get help um, if you don't feel comfortable responding to these letters and the consequences are significant, then you can seek out advice from uh, legal counsel with experience in this area to help you analyze the situation, assess the basis for the penalty, and develop a strategy and a potential response to see if you can make all or a portion of that penalty go away. So when you're engaged to assist an employer with a 226J letter, 
what are the basic action items uh, that you would recommend for an employer? I mean, I always start with things like don't panic and be, re be prepared to respond timely, you know, ask for help when needed, get your records and supporting documents together, consider problems that may exist uh, not only this year but in, in, in subsequent years and fix them. But what is it that, that you, you, know, you would tell them? My first piece of advice would be don't panic. I have seen a lot of these letters issued because the employer uh, filled out the forms incorrectly. And once we identify that, then we can sit down and figure out how the forms should have been filled out, explain that to the IRS, and perhaps reduce or eliminate all or some of the penalties. So the very first thing I would do is write down the date when your response is due, and then start gathering your documentation. Um, I would get as one of the key pieces of documentation a copy of the 1094C for the tax year issue as I mentioned earlier as well as copies of the 1095C for those employees identified on the form 14765. You might want to make certain also that you've got information relating to the contribution schedules for the year at issue. How much were you asking employees to pay for the lowest cost plan? What affordability safe harbor did you use? It's very interesting to me how many employers don't know. Mm -hmm. The answer that they'll come back with is, my broker knows or um, my payroll company knows, I'll get back to you. And that's fine, and, and they probably do have that supporting documentation, but um, the employer should probably also have that handy. And I will say if you're an HR practitioner, um, it will also make you look good if you can answer those questions very quickly when the CFO comes into your office and says, hey, what's this letter for the IRS all about? And right. you can say, I can handle this. <laughs> yes. And then you need things like, as we talked about before, the SBCs, um, any, any other type of documentation that you might have in your file. I would suggest getting the SBCs. Um, they are a good record keeping device. I would also recommend getting, as I mentioned, the contribution schedules and any data that you have to demonstrate um, if there's a question as to whether or not you're an ALE, if there's a question as to how many full-time employees you had, any documentation you have to support the data that you used to fill out the 1094C and the 1095C. What what are the most common mistakes that you see when uh, the filing forms are submitted? These days, it seems like we're seeing a lot of coding errors. In the 1094C, I'm seeing a lot of employers answering incorrectly the question as to whether or not they offered MEC coverage to at least 95% of their employees. And if you answer that question incorrectly and one of your employees gets a premium tax credit, you will get a 226J letter from the IRS. The other uh, common errors I'm seeing are the coding errors in line 14 and line 16 nice. of the 1095Cs. I've seen those a lot, yeah. Those are coming up a lot. Employers not fully appreciating um, what code they should have used in a particular circumstance. I've seen a lot of situations where the affordability safe harbor code just gets left off completely. So those are the kinds of errors that I'm seeing. I would also say to employers, with that in mind, um, when your outside vendor or whoever it is prepares the 1094C and the 1095Cs for the 2019 tax years, tax year before you mail them out be, to employees and before you file them with the IRS, take a look at them mm -hmm. before you sign them and make certain that you're comfortable with the answers given um, so that uh, you can try to forestall a potential 226J letter down the line. 
And also, if you do get a 226J letter because of coding errors, it's a good thing to, after you fix the problem for the 226J letter um, at issue that's sitting in front of you, get the records for the next year and see if you can proactively fix any potential problems because we are seeing the same kind of errors carried over from year, year to year. year. Mm -hmm. Can you provide some helpful hints on uh, what to do and what not to do when you get these letters? My first hint would be, as we talked about earlier, don't panic. Mm -hmm. My second hint would be get the documentation together um, so that you are comfortable knowing that the answers that you're giving to the IRS are accurate and complete. And the third thing is, if you need help, get help. There are people out there who can assist you with this process. You don't have to be alone in this. And there are people who can help work you through the process um, to try to get the best possible result for your company. And you can also file for an extension if you think that might help you. You can also file for an extension. You can actually call for an extension. Right on the outside of the letter, there is a phone number that you can call. They do actually answer the number. Um, and they don't, you don't have to sit on hold for very long. And they will answer the call. And they will, um, if they will answer questions that you have. And they will grant you a short extension of time. That's, that's good to know. Is documentation normally required to include with a response letter? Interestingly, the IRS has not been requiring documentation um, to uh, it, uh, it together with the response. Um, however, I recommend to employers that you do get the documentation together so that um, you feel comfortable as you're making these representations to the IRS that what you're saying is accurate. This is the time to really get it right. Um, and you never know if they could come back and audit you at a later date. So this is, this is a good time to get all your records together. But as I said, the IRS has not actually been requesting backup documentation. It's a different story with those marketplace appeal letters. Right. I was going to mention that, yeah. HHS has been demanding backup documentation and very specific backup documentation. They're very particular. So that is um, a somewhat different scenario. So the types of things that you need for the market, marketplace appeal letters are what? Uh, the SBC is handy to have because it indicates the uh, plan year. It indicates um, whether or not the coverage was MEC and minimum value, and HHS will accept that as evidence. Your contribution schedule so that HHS can quickly identify that the monthly cost for your lowest cost plan was within the affordability range. If you have enrollment or waiver forms for particular employees, they will ask for that too. Um, if you file an appeal and they don't think that you've filed sufficient documentation, they will send you a letter outlining very specifically the type of documents they do want. Um, and it is quite precise, but it will give you um, a, a a roadmap for preparing the documentation and supplementing your original filing. So you will have some additional time to supplement that. Well, this has been very helpful. And I know we did repeat a couple of these things, but I, when I asked the question a second time, it was primarily because I really wanted to hit home on some of these topics because people listen and they don't quite understand and I wanted to kind of circle back around to some of these things. So thank you for bearing with me on that when I kind of repeated some of the questions. Uh, in a different, little bit different way. Well, um, I think it's also helpful because it all does fit together yes. in one big puzzle. <laughs> um, and all the pieces of the puzzle do come together eventually. So how you fill out the 1094 and 1095 forms, how you calculate the contributions, um, and what happens when you get a marketplace or a 226J letter, they all impact one another. So it is useful to see the, the entire picture in context. Yes. 
So if an employer has one of these uh, letters in hand, and if they receive a letter, 226J letter or a marketplace appeal letter, and they never had to deal with this before and now they have to, maybe their broker isn't prepared to assist them, um, how can they contact someone? Like, how can they contact you to help them? They say, Marilyn, you were great on the podcast. We want it. We want to work with you. How do they do that? Well, they can call my phone, 310-989-0993, or they can send me an email at marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. Pretty simple. And you also have a website. I do, monahanlawoffice.com. Yes. So pretty easy to get a hold of. And I will say, as I said at the beginning, that I've worked with you for a number of years, decades in fact, and, and you've always done such a great job with us. I'm thankful that we haven't had many of these to work uh, to work on, but on the couple that we have, you've been very, very helpful in, in getting us all the documentation, getting us everything together and help us with that letter. The main thing is we normally have the documentation, but it's putting the stuff in writing in that letter that's so important. And we've always relied on you to do that. And you've been done, doing such a great job on that for every one of them that we've, we've asked you to assist with. So we thank you for that. And, and uh, again, if anyone does need assistance with them, contact Marilyn. She's fabulous. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to work with you and to help out. Thank you. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.